Did you get really high on accident? Yep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have been singing a song in my heart for the last week, my friends. I've had Mr. Mistopheles stuck in my head for for a while, <laughs> like just out of nowhere. Just like all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Josh got out scot-free. Whatever. In one ear, out the other. I'm out cold. I catch viruses, not feelings, babe. I don't <laughs> I I got nothing. I got nothing. I was trying to ad lib something. It's all good. Before we get into the movie, I want to get to know a little bit about people's experiences with Drama Club. Do you have any experiences or memories being in Drama Club, friends with people in Drama Club? This feels like you have maybe more to say about this, Allison, than I, than I would. I'm trying. It's like a file that I'm working through. Oh, okay. You're, you're collating? That stand out. Okay. Yeah. I understand. So I tried out for Drama Club one time my senior year in high school. Oh. Mm. I w- it was my senior year. I had played all the sports and done all the stuff. And I decided I was going to try out for a play. It did not go very well. I did not get it get a part. I was not a part of the production. Did you have to sing? I had to dance. Oh. Did you get in the chorus? I didn't get. I didn't get shit. I got. I got a thank you and goodbye. <laughs> oh, and then later that year, the girl that I thought was going to go to prom with me ended up going with one of the theater guys. After I asked her out, which made no sense to me, because he was little and weird, and he could sing and dance. It's because drama. <laughs> it's because drama kids have that weird sexual magnetism. There it is. Yeah. It's, it's they're crawling all over each other. Yeah. Constantly. Like marching band kids. Yeah. Or like Ren Fair kids. Oh, God. It's all the same kind it's of all people. The, it's all the same. Again, getting turned out. <laughs> <laughs> turned out by the process. Uh, I, was, um, I was in Sweet Charity in high school. And uh, I played one of the uh, background like dancer girls in the dance hall. And my character was like perpetually drunk or on quaaludes. <laughs> And um, and so there was like there's only like a few very serious scenes in the show, and apparently my my performance of drunkenly dancing with my partner uh, was making the audience laugh and not it was making the lead gal pretty pissed off. But I, I, there's so many times when I've been like in a dance performance, or you know I was on the improv team, and you get those like pre-show jitters, and so mm-hmm. there's been quite a few times where I've had to like in between. Uh, songs or whatever just have to take the fastest shit <laughs> of my life. So. I would say you have some pretty visceral experiences being in Drama Club. Mm-hmm. Literally. I always was like, 
drama club adjacent because all my punk rock friends either were like one foot in drama, one foot out, or were dating a drama person. And so for me, it was, I would hang out with the punks and goths. There would be one or two random people from our group that would hang out with that crew. The goths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's like wallet, wallet chain era, Brady. Wallet chain. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, skate punk, <laughs> skate punk, absolutely. You know, I bad, remembered this era well. Yeah, bad religion. Um, Not for me. Who for you? Archers of Loaf. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. That reads. Yeah. I like that band. Yeah, I like the band too. Who else are you thinking from your skate era, Josh? I was actually a big fan of Built This Bill for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget which album, Carry the Zero, and some other other stuff. Um, they kind of turned into a different band after that, and uh, like indie rock used to be a totally different animal back then and i was a an indie rock skateboard guy Mm. yeah before i got more interested in harder stuff i had a awesome mixtape that turned me on to a bunch of different things that i didn't have any idea about and it changed my life forever (laughs) (laughs) yeah i grew up playing piano like you all know and so i i would like we only found out about like fucking a few weeks ago brady Fair enough. So I was like, you know, the the studious drama kid who would put on a dress collar to go to a competitive piano recital, right? And then I would, after I would like compete. Those things are brutal. (laughs) I mean, there's blood on the floor. They have to mop that shit out of the car room. Yeah. So I'm playing piano in a dress shirt, and then it's like I rip those clothes off and like put on my little punk shit, and you know, I'm 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 just all over the place, man. (laughs) <laughs> that's totally that's totally like mm-hmm. oh. so i didn't really go to high school that much mm-hmm. so i never did any of those kind of activities really you know i didn't go to prom or was never part of a club i just kind of smoked weed and didn't go to class that much however when i was in third grade well, i still had promise <laughs> <laughs> so i grew up in a musical theater family and so like we were, i grew up in the kind of family that if we would go we like we it was really common practice to go to a show and then after like do a whole breakdown as a family like critiquing performances voices you know mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff like that <clears throat> so when i was in third grade and my sister was trying out for the music man it made sense that i would also try out and be in it with her Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it happened to coincide with me being in speech therapy for my lisp. Mm-hmm. And so this became a topic of discussion with my speech therapist because she was worried that if I played Winthrop, that I'd regress <laughs> from <laughs> from all the progress that we'd made. Torment, buddy. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was really, you know, I, I, I sold my soul, man. I sold my soul for, for the chance at the limelight and then it kind of did kind of regress man my friend the other day asked me if i got my if my parents got their money back <laughs> <laughs> i mean it could be much it, it could be much worse i get that but it could have been better had i had i heated the the very stern conversation that my speech therapist had with me before i took on the role but i didn't you know i did a good job and i never did it again oh man so are you into musicals to this day? I mean, maybe you talked about it a yeah. little bit on, on the last episode, but like your general feelings. Yeah, it's just like, you it's watch- just like family culture. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like my parents, I think it's partly what my, my parents embrace having these like two kids that wanted to be rappers. Yeah. It's like they're little white kids that were wanted to be rappers in the 90s. You know, I think they just like saw as an extension of music, like family musical interest. So like my Christmases or anything like that would all be like, be like 
someone doing a musical number, someone playing an instrument, mm-hmm. somebody doing a like poem, that kind of stuff. Then that we sounds, wrapped. Nice. <laughs> like a yeah. pleasant Christmas. Yeah, it was pretty good. It was pretty magical. It's kind of like a Fanny and Alexander. Holy cow, we all have had very different experiences with theater and drama, and I assume that's probably going to inform our take on today's movie, Phantom of the Paradise. Let's dig in, shall we? 20th Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise, a gothic horror story. What was that? A beautiful love story. A cinematic odyssey through the rock universe. From Greece to glitter and beyond. The story of a sound, the man who created it, the girl who sang it. Phantom of the Paradise is a 1974 American musical horror comedy film written and directed by Brian De Palma and scored by and starring Paul Williams. In the film, a disfigured composer writes his music for a woman he loves so that she can sing it. However, a record producer betrays him and steals his music (laughs) to open his rock palace, the paradise. Betrayed, the composer dons a new appearance and exacts revenge on the producer. What a great synopsis. I just want to say that we watched this in like sections because Josh and I don't do, we don't eat edibles often at all. Mm. And like we had taken a couple and started watching this and I was like, I, this is fucking trash. Like I can't, I can't. Mm. And then we went back and finished it the next day. And now I, and now I kind of love it because the ending like makes up for everything. Um, But I don't know. Like, can we, we talk about what the fuck happened in this thing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, essentially, essentially you have, it starts out with like a grease, grease lightning kind of feel rock band Mm -hmm. um, that apparently just keeps getting recycled for different music genres as the, as the movie goes on. Yep. Yeah, Swan keeps reinventing the band into whatever's popular at the moment. So they start out as like a fifties revival grease thing. And then become like the Beach Boys for a second, and then they become like these uh, like, like art, art glam rockers. Yeah, and which I think is kind of like a tale of the music industry. Anyway, it's like mm-hmm. what what's going to sell, what's going to get pressed and put out and polished. Winslow comes in and starts playing his music. It catches the ears of Swan, who's this you know creepy, delicate, sexy producer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Small and, and Swan. Sexy man. And Swan ends up finding finding a way to steal this music from um, Winslow. So before you're even introduced to Swan, you have the henchman looking at him in the foreground and the guys playing the piano in the background. And so he's mm-hmm. introduced as this kind of weird menacing character uh, while the guy's playing like the best song in the entire soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you're like, oh, this this song is is interesting, and you're you're um, the camera's rotating around the piano, and it's this really intimate experience. And while all of a sudden it cuts from that to the guy in the studio den thing, conversation eventually ends, and it cuts to him, and it's this little guy, and you're like, oh, is that all? 
<laughs> just, just like, mean, let, let's let's talk about the little guy really quick. Yeah. I mean, the little guy is Paul Williams, uh, who is I mean, for his time was extraordinarily talented. I mean, he wrote songs for fucking everyone, and he was extremely well liked. But he is he's a delicate, sensual. <laughs> fine-bodied 5'2 of a man with long blonde hair wearing like it looks like he's dressed up for someone else's bat mitzvah like in the 70s with like the huge collars and the huge ties and I just wanted to take a moment to talk about his you know like Paul Williams raw sexual appeal you know specifically 1970s you know with the hair Mm -hmm. but just his slight, elegant five foot two frame, just making out with Jessica Harper. It's it's almost like it's almost like watching like a teenager flipping off his father while mm. making out with his teacher. <laughs> mm-hmm. The Phantom is the father and in the, the situation. Yeah, the Phantom. Yeah, sorry, the Phantom. Like the looking on, yeah. grimacing, disapproving, hating yeah. everything. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean to jump way ahead, but it was like, I was so completely disgusted at first. And then I was like, I need, it's such an interesting choice (laughs) for him to be so powerful and just spanking all the babes. Well, especially when he's, when he's in those lavender satin silk shirts and like the Mm. beige vests and the crevasse and, you know, it's just like, and the hidden secret doors. Yeah, I really like that line right up front when they said uh, she wasn't just a piece; she was the light of my life. (laughs) (laughs) That's when I knew I was in for a good, good movie. Uh, To me, that was an indication that there was like a level of 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 absurdity that I it was like 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 clued me into the absurdity and told Mm -hmm. me that I shouldn't take it too seriously or I wouldn't get it. Yeah, and it's interesting because like then there was that whole like Keystone Cops like hijinks thing that happened in the prison, right? Where uh the teeth. Yeah, when the teeth. Oh, and yeah. so it's like, wait, he to your point about the absurdity, you're watching this movie and you're like, Oh, there's this desperate songwriter, and then all of a sudden he's thrown outside, a packet or a little baggie of coke is planted on him. He goes to Sing Sing, they extract his teeth, and he's putting bo- uh, boxes of tiddlywinks together uh, when he decides to escape. And you're like, what the hell kind of movie am I watching? Don't you think they could have stopped him? <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I wasn't, I didn't quite know how to feel about it at first. I mm-hmm. really, really wasn't enjoying it when we first started watching it. And I was cursing your name again, Brady. <laughs> um, your wild cardness struck again. And then, <laughs> and then it got to a point where I was like, they're doing, they're, De Palma is doing stuff that wasn't mm-hmm. really a mm-hmm. thing for the time. Like to have a movie that silly and that, you know, especially for uh, Winslow's character when he's now the Phantom and he's just completely. Uh, absurd and or even like beef's character when he comes in to sing and he gets electrocuted <laughs> that whole electrocution scene yeah like made everything the moment beef showed yeah, up much, in the movie yeah beef was the major turning point for me as well at to chime in on what allison's was saying at, or mm-hmm. saying here yeah the first 30 to 40 minutes were rather painful for me and i did not I didn't know where it was going. I couldn't see the the light at the end of the tunnel. And I was just kind of hating it a lot. <laughs> and that all started to change when Beef showed up. And the movie really <laughs> turned a corner and improved radically thereafter. Yes, Beef. I, lo- I loved it. Yeah. Pretty much from the beginning. Because I, I, I thought that the... Uh, I loved how like the, the music was so pretty. Especially that first song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That it... It was just so interesting, like the juxtaposition of like the way that the movie was told and the way that the music was. I just loved it. 
It was like such a, it, it, I don't know. It like the music was so earnest that it made you feel for the Winslow character mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. from the heart. Yeah. And like, and that I, well, I, it, ha- it had me, it, <laughs> well, it, it had me from the very first frames, right? Because you had the bird that was spinning and he, mm-hmm. they got Rod Serling to do the narration, which I thought was clever. And then the spiral. Uh, and then like, I think that there was this disorienting thing of like the bird, like, it comes in and it's standing straight up and then it spins and then it's upside down. And so it's like, oh, there's this really interesting subversion of things going on with him having Rod, Rod Sterling introduce this absurd character that that had a hit record when he was 14 years old that just kind of hit in a way that I was like, oh, I'm watching something different. This just doesn't somebody. Oh, it's different. Who, yeah. And so it, it, for me, I was like, where's this going? Um, and that... It, I. I, I was hooked at the very beginning as well because it was so strange. And I think what Allison and Josh, I won't speak for them, but I think what, what they're kind of hitting at is like there's there's something like kind of not there's something kind of not likable about the first 30 to 60 minutes where you're like, oh, I get it. You know, there's it's just like this desperate songwriter guy. And then when it gets into the theatricality of the characters being like wrestling characters, essentially, um, <laughs> You know, it hit, it hits this place of like, oh, watching the song be played by all these different people and kind of reconnecting back with who that character was at the very beginning mm-hmm. and him not being at all like this phantom character. So I, it just seems like it just feels like the entire thing is this really cynical take on the music industry, which is obvious. Mm-hmm. But that symbology really worked in the progression and the weird editing. It just worked for me. I don't know if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it got there. So. I just wanted to like reiterate that this is uh, the movie is based off of Phantom of the Opera and then also based off of Faust. And Faust is a famous story where basically uh, a very successful but very bored man uh, does a trade with the devil for his soul in order to get all the knowledge and all the earthly pleasures. And so that is uh, that's basically the character of Paul Williams in here or Swan, who's the music producer. Um, we do find out that eventually through a series of kind of odd discoveries in the movie that he has sold his soul to the devil to be young forever young and successful Mm. forever and in turn has had all of his basically his cronies and uh, people that work for him sign these lifelong contracts so and they can't get out unless he dies and he can't die unless his original contract with the devil is destroyed Mm. and so but you don't really find that out until like the very very end and when it all comes together it's just it's just fucking bananas and and really fun and kind of goofy um especially especially that last scene when like he's getting married to uh uh to phoenix mm-hmm. and you're just like wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the whole thing is built around this the satire of the music industry and the initial premise of like this never-ending conveyor belt of hopefuls and wannabes uh, doing their very best to impress this uh, Phil Spector, David Geffen, waif-like, mm. invisible, spectral super producer who holds your fate in his hands with godlike power. And then you get like the, the as you guys are saying, the earnestness of um, the Winslow Leach character playing his singer-songwriter ballad on the piano that, of course, just like just immediately pulled into the whole factory-style system, exploited for his talent, and then discarded so that his words and music can be used for the pre-assembled boy band that Swan has already lined up. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing is is a super cynical take and satire of the music industry. And, you know, depending on who you talk to, kind of accurate. Um, this movie was originally titled Phantom of the Fillmore. 
and mm-hmm. was written by De Palma's old partner, and her name is Louisa Rose. Hmm. She wrote it, fan of the Fillmore. But then the actual Fillmore Hotel, you know, from all the famous like Rolling Stones and all that stuff back in the 60s, they threatened to sue. So they changed the name. Uh, De Palma had to rework the story a little bit, but then at some point he dropped credit to Louisa Rose. So hmm. it became Phantom of the Paradise at that point rather than Phantom of the Fillmore. Louisa Rose is out. And we have the the bones of this story, which, of course, is all wrapped up in all kinds of Phantom of the Opera and Faust, Frankenstein and uh, Portrait of Dorian Gray. So it's, Oh, yeah, that's right. I didn't think about that last one. Uh, what's interesting to me is that the, the rock and roll uh, historionics continue through the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And there's like a couple key things where he keeps calling attention to bands or people or he's he's not quite naming names, but he's definitely pointing fingers. Mm hmm. Uh, and I wonder, you know, Brian De Palma made this movie when he was 34 years old. Uh, what was his proximity to the music scene in New York or Philadelphia or on the West Coast or wherever he was living? Did he did he know these people? Did he have like a super personal connection and maybe like an axe to grind? I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I can't think of I can't think of the personal axe to grind other than the fact that maybe he just had these kind of dual parts of his personality where he was more like the rock people, but then also he's the controlling director guy. And so there's, there's almost like this internal, uh, you know, introspection about the kind of the control and the chaos that, that he kind of feels within himself. Um, mm-hmm. So I kind of interpret it differently, more just from that perspective of like a person reconciling the wanting to be a, you know, famous versus just like being chaotic and doing whatever he wants to do. Yeah, so it's more of an internal, like a, inter- an internal monologue. I see it as a tragedy, you know, like he, uh, like Winslow's tragic flaw is being like making art for too earnest of reasons. Mm -hmm. And because of that, he's like chewed up and destroyed by the industry. Oh, I see what you're saying. It was like the the movie is almost judging him for being too, too earnest. Not necessarily. I think, I mean, no, because I think that he's still the protagonist, you know, still the hero. Ultimately, the movie ends with him, right? Yeah, but he's say, killed a shit ton of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, hey, he's but a wanted a terrorist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Never, never thought about poor Winslow that way. I was just on his side. I was Team Winslow all the way. I mean, you, you can think about it like when you're when you are creating when you're creating for major studios, uh, whether it be film or music. Uh, it's really not yours anymore. Mm-hmm. The finished yeah. product is um whatever whoever is producing it it's their finished product it's really theirs um and so i think that that's you can juxtapose that to film if de palma is trying to find a connection for this that yeah like you can you can put your heart and soul into it you can create this thing and but if the producer doesn't like it you just got to suck it up and change it mm-hmm. that's the story for everyone working in those industries um yeah so like the the kind of the the hook that keeps winslow's character involved in this whole dark menagerie or whatever Mm -hmm. is that he meets a girl in line and likes her a lot i would say he likes her maybe a little too much a little too quickly yeah yeah but but that's maybe that's just jazzed up for the purposes of the movie or whatever what kind of movie would this be if that never happened you know would could he just walk away or would uh swan somehow find another way to get his claws in him because they have kind of like a a dual fate like a twin fate Mm -hmm. thing Mm -hmm. like the skexis in dark crystal (laughs) Yes. You know what I'm saying? I do. They are the they are the opposite sides of the mm-hmm. same coin, and they are going to share the same fate. Yes, mm-hmm. and that's what that's that's what I was trying to suggest too, Josh. Is that like these two parts of his personalities? Like it's it's this 
elements of he's like not vanity, satisfied. vanity and integrity. Yes, like mm-hmm. he's not satisfied with either part of his personality. Can you make yeah. that noise again, Allison? The Skeksis. The Skeksis noise. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, having said that, the the two sides of the same coin thing. Um, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, um, is that something that Hitchcock gets into? Because De Palma loves Hitchcock. I mean, I think he's. I think like with the split screen stuff, he's he's definitely like building suspense in the same way that you would with just cutting, mm-hmm. right? You know, if you're like cutting between the people on the trolley and the bomb underneath the table, right? Like you would be cutting in the same way. But then he he also loves split screen, man. He really does. Started with I don't know when it started, but he did it in Snake Eyes. He's done it a number of times, like the split screen technique. But he does it in a good way. A lot of people use split screen in like a really arbitrary way, and I feel like he was actually using it pretty creatively in this. Right on. I can't think of a link with uh, Hitchcock though using well, like the double sided personality or like the, I would say the the emphasis on like big visuals mm-hmm. is probably a Hitchcock thing that he goes for. I think uh, De Palma. In this movie, you know, because like the big flourish of the end, like the huge, mm-hmm. all the people on stage and the big, you know, marriage, death, all that stuff. He likes the big shocking ending. Mm-hmm. And that's that's been a thing in like a bunch of his movies. So a big shocking ending would be a connection. Uh, I'm not super familiar with a lot of like Andy Warhol's, you know, factory movies. Mm-hmm. But I hear a lot of comparisons to De Palma and Andy Warhol. Like yeah. at least the early stuff. Maybe the style. Yeah. yeah. Like, to me, it all kind of looks like a like an old monkeys movie. Oh, interesting! It does have that quality to it. I was thinking about that. Interesting. I, 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 one thing I wanted to say about the um, interaction on the steps is that I feel like to me that's one of the most interesting parts of the movie. Because wait, wait, pause. When when he's outside the record company, when building he meets or... Phoenix on the steps. Oh, oh, in the mansion, and she hear and he hears her singing. Yeah, to in the me, mansion. Yeah, that's when he. That's when he does say, uh, "I would never let my personal desires affect my aesthetic judgment mm-hmm. to her." And I feel like I believe him. I don't feel like his obsession with her is based in, uh, I mean, romance and attraction as much as it's based in his aesthetic judgment that she is the best person to sing the thing that he's made. And that he's then that's why he's willing to like sacrifice over it. And it may, yeah, I think it gets confused, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that ultimately, when he says that versus them being like someone else says in the movie, uh, who cares what anything's about? Who listens to lyrics, anyways? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's, I feel like through the movie, he keeps juxtaposing those kind of things like this fidelity to making something really integrous to your aesthetic judgment versus making something because it's what the audience wants. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That couldn't be more juxtaposed in itself than the time and place where rock and roll was going at that time, because that was all about like shock theater and these incredible stage performances. Um, this happened after the Alice Cooper chicken incident. Are you guys? <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. What do you, What have you heard about the chicken incident? Because I've heard different things. I heard that uh, a live chicken was thrown into the audience and the audience tore it apart. Okay, that that is the accurate version of events. There was a, a much more salacious version. And Marilyn Manson was in the crowd and he took ribs out. There you go. <laughs> popped it right out. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, so the, the salacious version that was encouraged to keep going because of uh, Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa was working with Alice Cooper at the time. Was that uh, Alice Cooper had ripped the chicken's head off and was drinking its blood. <laughs> so that was the one story that got out and zap was like if they if that's what they believe you just gotta let them believe it 
you should never get in the way of an urban legend that points to you. Just go with it. Unless, I mean, unless it's like, unless it's... Uh, Richard Gere? Really negative. <laughs> like Lauren Hill. The things that people are saying about her. And Tommy Hilfiger. What? Wait, wait. I haven't heard about Tommy Oh, Hilfiger. somebody said that she was like... Oh, no, wait, was it... Am I thinking of her with Tommy Hilfiger? Oh, no, she, she's the one that they claim said that I would... I, I don't... Basically, she didn't want any white people to listen to her music, which I think was misquoted. Oh. <laughs> Fair yeah. enough. And people for a long time, like... I held a bias against her for it. I, I, I had heard that and it never stopped me. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course Sorry. not. No, no, of course not. She's the shit. I, I, that, that type of propaganda was used, I mean, heavily. Uh, yeah. Hitchcock used that uh, for Psycho and fuck uh the exorcist that was huge huge for the exorcist oh like the the urban urban legends surrounding the movie oh yeah yeah. that you know like people were throwing up or passing out or that you know you can't see this if you have a weak heart or they would have ambulances waiting outside the nurse out front yeah yeah yeah. really wasn't going on it was just it was creating a whole different experience for people to bring them in Mm. and so well so i i'm curious uh to this point about like viral or kind of word of mouth the fact that that this is compared to Rocky Horror, um, I just heard a, a disgusted moan. You don't like Rocky Horror? No. Listen, I'm just gonna be straight up right now. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't like. I don't fucking like Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. I've seen it. I've seen it hundreds of times, and each time I'm thinking that oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna see the missing puzzle piece. <laughs> There's no fucking missing puzzle piece. All right. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> I sure like Tim Curry though. Tim Curry yeah, is Tim wonderful. Curry's awesome. Tim Curry is wonderful. Yeah. The rest of it can I just don't care. It's not, I just I've, don't think it's that good of a movie. I, I think I think Phantom of the um <laughs> what? I think Phantom <laughs> of the Paradise is way better. That's that's I was curious about what people's opinion was about this because I had the same kind of feelings about Rocky Horror as Allison, but more just from the kind of culture it taking up so much underground space. Mm, that's right? a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. That there's only so much time and, and and actual geographic space in the case of Portland because there's like theaters that dedicate a lot of a lot of screen time to to Rocky Horror. So it's like okay, judging these types of movies on those same type of merits, and I think Fan of the Paradise is much better in the fact that it's going for something really strange, really uh, hard to describe, and I, I, I it really just comes down to taste, right? Because like Rocky Horror is like really polished on the sci-fi B-movie horror stuff from the 50s and Fan of the Paradise is doing this like psycho or like Hitchcock movie nerd thing, right? So they're like, so it's like the artsy fartsy movie people and then the like the B-movie horror. Do you see what I'm saying? Like it's a very I, I different. Saying. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I found, I found a fan of the paradise to just be more creative. I mean, yeah. like the, I, for films of that time, like I, they have so many perfect s- stills. Like if you just stop the movie and that's the poster, mm-hmm. like there's so many weird, goofy little stills or jokes or mm-hmm. um, visuals that are happening that I am not really familiar with seeing in other movies of that time. And so I think it's, uh, it's got more personality and it's way more unique, in my opinion, than Rocky Horror Picture Show. I think it's like, for me, it's hard to say because I, I don't, I didn't really know this movie. I'd never had heard of it. And uh, Rocky Horror is like the quintessential cult film. Mm-hmm. And so I don't even know how to watch it without the narrative that surrounds it. Because I didn't see it before it was already a phenomenon. But this right. one, I felt like being dislocated from all of that. I just, I, I felt like one of the things I like most about it was that it still feels fresh today to me like it still feels surprising 
you could tell that De Palma was in a good period of his career when he made it. Mm-hmm. I, that's how I felt, at least. Like, I felt like he was like being create. He was being super creative. There's like a vibrancy and energy to the whole thing that even when you're not like necessarily in love with what like how people are treated as caricatures or how are they depicted, the actual energy and dynamics of the whole thing always feels super fresh to me. I've never been a big fan of Rocky Horror Picture Show. I understand the appeal. I just don't feel it. You know, it's like some people are really into soccer. (laughs) (laughs) Like I'll I'll watch World Cup. That's fun. Uh, But I kind of don't care. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But there's also kinds of things that I care a lot about that I can't make other people feel anything for. So I don't, I'm not going to disrespect Rocky Horror Picture Show, but kind of like what Torben's saying about it's sort of, uh, it's cult status sometimes overshadows the individual qualities of the movie itself. Uh, Barry Boswick is awesome. Tim Curry is awesome. Susan Sarandon, eh, but she's still pretty good. Um, anyway, uh, but yeah, yeah one of those movies I would love it. to just like, I would love to just, it would be interesting to stumble on a movie like that, but it's just not possible because it's, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That like Phantom, it was it was fun for me to stumble. Well, I mean, not it was I was directed to it, but I felt like it's something that I should have seen before and I hadn't and I hadn't even heard of. And so in that in that respect, it was just really delightful because yeah, it, I, I, I just had no idea that it existed. It had been on my radar for a time, and I just kind of kept kicking the can down the road. And I'm I'm glad that Brady suggested it, and ultimately I'm glad that I watched it. You know, it it, it definitely had. For me, like kind of an iffy start and then picked up dramatically again after uh, Beef shows up. Beef. <laughs> Garrett Graham. That's Beef. Yeah, man. Beef. Wonderful. And uh, yeah, it's... Uh, I also kind of go back to the historionics because of the comparisons between like, say, the Band Kiss or Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Band Kiss was basically just forming at that point. So wasn't really a huge influencer of this movie. Rocky Horror Picture Show was off Broadway, but the movie hadn't been made. So I don't think that you could say that De Palma was influenced by Rocky Horror that much. Again, I think it's mostly the early rock and roll, Alice Cooper, Iggy Pop, David Bowie stage antics that what drove the visuals and i agree with torben that the visuals do seem fresh there's a a rawness and a realness and a uh, uh, improvisational quality some might say a sprezzatura that brian de palma brings to the film (laughs) i have a question yeah so was this before or after stunt rock came out Ooh. Ooh. Looks like Stunt Rock came out in 78, so Phantom of the Paradise was before. I really wanted some like wizardy influences from one to Wizarding the influences. Oh, don't worry. <laughs> the movie culminated in this song at the very end where they're all on stage. There's this kind of verite style where the camera is like almost one of the people on the on the stage participating, right? They were like looking at the camera and after the Phantom stabbed Swan and then they die together and they kind of like crawl off stage and Phoenix is, uh, you know, stumbling back horrified that the crowd on the stage just keeps dancing. Mm-hmm. So like there's this element of like, you know, the camera's part of the audience and just like, you know, regardless of where you lay on this spectrum politically the show must go on and i thought it, i thought it was a really interesting way of describing that the show must go on well it's also it's like how far can you take a stage show where people don't know what's real and what isn't right because of the what happened with beef in the previous act you know. where they they decapitate and dismember audience members yeah. and then assemble them on stage <laughs> i love that shit that's awesome <laughs> And then he gets electrocuted. The audience thinks that's part of the show. I think that's the idea is that the, 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 the performers keep pushing the boundaries of what 
what kind of spectacle you're going to see. What are what are other times that that's truly happened? Like where like something catastrophic has happened on stage and the audience they just keep they hmm. kind of have to play along with it. The band does at least. There have been people who have caught on fire on stage. Michael Jackson. Uh, Ace Freely caught on fire at a Kiss concert. <laughs> right. And just right. Kept playing. Yep. Nobody. And the audience did anything, and eventually one of the, like the roadies noticed and put them out. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Oh. Trying to think of other examples. I know there's been some like you know these huge rock tours that have like these massive sets, and there's always like uh, problems with the sets, yeah. which of course they make fun of in uh, this Spinal Tap. Uh, but that some of that oh, stuff yeah. is real. Yeah, yeah. They had actual like set catastrophes that are just like part of the show. <laughs> There's got to be like yeah, hair, gotta... hair band mm. catastrophes. There's just too much pyrotechnics involved and like different little kicks and shit. Like there has to be some kind of problem that would happen. Well, there's that that one fire, that real well, fire. I, that, was it Rat or White Snake? Who was that? I think it was White Snake. There you go. Yeah. yeah, or people died. Rat. A bunch of people. It's part died. of the show. Don't worry about it. Yeah, part of yeah, the show. I, I cut a trailer for a uh, for a proposed like doc series on hair bands. And it was fascinating to me because I've never seen any of this stuff in my life. <laughs> what I imbibed when I was growing up. Really entertaining. So you got fresh eyes. <laughs> yeah, super entertaining. Was it Lollapalooza kind of like carried that torch? Because you had like Rammstein with like little people with like blowing torches and stuff. And so you remember that? Like just all sorts of pyrotechnics, Marilyn Manson. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I'm trying to think there was a moment where it, it all kind of went out of style. It was probably after that White Snake concert. Oh no, that that was a recent concert though. I was like within like the last 10, 10 years. Yeah. Uh, but there was like time. I would say that the hair metal bands, other than like onstage pyrotechnics, were shifting away from more of a a theater of the macabre <laughs> to a um, a steel cowboy kind of vibe. You know, <laughs> I'm just like think about Guns and Roses and yeah. Slash and Bon yeah. Jovi. Like I'm this dusty outsider i'm just gonna ride my harley davidson into the sunset and scream i think i'm pregnant yeah that's the third date <laughs> um so that the whole weirdo circus thing i think didn't come back until kind of like new metal yeah uh i think sort of you know industrial edm music was sort of oh, carrying that yeah. a little bit no i've been to some shows where it, it wasn't just carrying it a little bit oh really but, i mean those shows are bananas but like I, pyrotechnics and and like lights and yeah i think like the soul you know like uh what was it would you say dwarfs with trumpets phase <laughs> what what, you, what little people with what? trumpet what are you are we talking about what are we talking about <laughs> i think that that stage element went away in the late 80s and came back in the 2000s the circus weirdo don't Family Values tour. Weird. Because Family Values uh, tour. Chris Angel, Mind Freak. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, so Family. Okay, yeah, you're right. In Lollapalooza. Okay, we're connecting some dots. Because Lollapalooza gave way to Family Values, right? Yeah. Huh. So yeah. And where does where where did the gathering of the Juggalos (laughs) fall in all of this? It's just in like it's just like fucking on a river somewhere in like Kern Valley in LA, like. Juggalos got their first point with me recently, man, after all these years in, in canceling their events because they said they didn't want anyone to get the the corona. They didn't want their juggalos to be harmed. Yeah, so they so they, they, they made a decision that transcended our national politics, those juggalos. 
Other than that, I'm not a big fan because I did grow up in the Midwest as an Eminem fan, so there was beef between ACP and Eminem. Where Wait, was there really? Who do, you, yeah, who do you think won Tell that battle? <laughs> yeah. Oh, like the uh, yeah, you know, like the whole King Kniff, like the there's ICP skits and all of Eminem's early albums. Uh, I think they didn't they shoot like Fago or some shit like that as car or some they they shot some kind of pellet guns or some shit as car. That makes sense. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're both from Michigan gay and uh, Shaggy too dope. So you know, there's that too. You know, it takes all kinds. Yeah, it takes all kinds of people to build it. <laughs> it really does. And I'm happy that there is a place to go for young men with uh, sloped shoulders and and have a tough time growing facial hair, and and ladies it's true. who have really really long skinny legs and tiny asses that they like to twirl on big fat men. Yeah, we've all seen the videos. I've seen the videos. It'd be a tragedy if that didn't exist. I'm glad they have somewhere to go. <laughs> Any closing thoughts of the movie? I really liked it. I I have to say, I the first half hour or so, I thought it was going to be just shit. And, uh, and then fucking beef, man. I just beef. can't. Beef is the glam, glitter, gay rocker that I needed. And mm. uh, after that, I mean, the story really takes off. And it's really funny. It's really goofy. It's very unique. It's very creative. It's a fun movie. Yeah, I kind of echo some of the things Allison's saying here. Uh, it felt pretty flat and pretty rough for me early on because the music stuff, uh, I wasn't a big fan of the music, to be honest. Uh, it was nice, but it wasn't really my cup of tea. And it didn't really feel like the kind of welcome mat that I needed to kind of be introduced to this world. Uh, but as the movie sort of hit a certain point, I would say maybe towards like the end of the second act, if you want to call it that, uh, it made a dramatic shift. The story became a little more cohesive in terms of what was going on, who the characters are, what's about mm-hmm. to happen. And it uh, escalated dramatically. Um, it is really over the top. It's uh, extremely loud. It's garish. It's excessive. But it's having a lot of fun doing it. And you're brought along for the ride. Yeah, thumbs up. I would say it is a solid six. I was a fan, man. I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was pretty good. I uh, I was thinking about sampling it the whole time, uh, and then I was really pleasantly surprised when you uh, told me that Rick Ross and Ghostface had sampled from it. Mm-hmm. Because it makes a lot of sense to me, like it, it, it is the, the the kind of melodies that you can see being picked up by hip hop. Dude, that was so, so frustrating because I was going to do a remix for this this uh, episode, and I went to go sample the two two tracks that I wanted to sample, and the two tracks were used by Rick Ross and Ghostface Killer. So yeah. that was a really, like you said, it was a pleasant surprise, but it also was kind of strangely frustrating. You found yourself in a pickle. Yeah, I was like, well, I'm just going to play a Rick Ross track at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, no, but I, I I liked it. I mean, I I uh, I, I think that I um I really like the mess. Like what I read as overall message really resonated with me about making things and how there's all these like influences. I've definitely in my own small scale experience like people watering down shit, you mm-hmm. know, and just being in the position of needing to mitigate people with like the influence and decision making versus the integrity of the thing you're trying to make. Yeah. So I really related with that. Like the monkish side of me really likes like the very dogmatic Winslow mm-hmm. side of of like really making things because of what will be the what you think will be the best will be the best contribution to bring into the world. On top of that, it was, you know, had a, it was so absurd that it was fun. Uh, yeah, so I liked it. Yeah, for me, it, it, it's combining this with Cats um, and then just all the different movies that I watched as musical, like musicals over the last couple of weeks just reminded me of how, 
varied that the genre can be, and I, I often paint it into a specific box, um, just given my own experiences with it, and so or with with musicals. And so with Fan of the Paradise, it's a good reminder for me of like, here's a really well known director who went on to do like sleazy murder shows, crimes, you know, Hitchcock, you know, all sorts of thrillers. That he hit this kind of skipping stone in his career where he made this movie for a million dollars. That in the grand scheme of things, isn't a lot of money. Had Paul Williams, who that this was his first soundtrack before he went on and did the Muppet movie, and his songs even recently on Daft Punk albums are amazing. Just his sweet uh, elven body uh, yeah, with his seriously. very deep little boy and an old man penetrating stare. Yeah. <laughs> old man in a little boy's body. Mm-hmm. Man, if they just put him in cats, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, <laughs> so I think I think the journey the journey that of for me of like the movie is kind of also mapped out by the fact that I, I I looked at cats and Fan of the Paradise and everything in between. I don't know, Fan of the Paradise for me is going to be the movie that I watched like a year or two ago that got me interested even in thinking that musicals were an interesting genre. Right. And I had a hunch when I watched it that there was something interesting there. And then rewatching it for the show and rewatching other things around it. Um, like all that jazz is like one of my favorite movies I've ever seen of all time. Cabaret is great. Also by Bob Fosse. But mm-hmm. I, I think I think that the sloppiness in this movie is forgivable for me because of the sheer joy that they're making it. with. So loved it. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening in. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at solid6.podcast. Twitter and Facebook at Solid Six Podcast. Uh, I am Brady Kimball on Letterboxd. Allison. I'm Bruja Jones. Josh. I'm uh, Josh Spaceman on Instagram. Awesome. And thank you so much to our guest, Torben Bernhard, uh, who's been here for this episode and last episode, Cats. Uh, Torben, do you want to plug anything? No, I'm good, but thanks for having me. Thanks, Torben. Thanks for being here. Yeah, yeah. it was fun. Uh, Josh, do you have what our next movies will be? Yeah, well, Breaker Breaker, good buddy. We're going trucking. <gasps> We're going to do Sam Peckinpah's Convoy and Stuart Gordon's Space Truckers. Two directors that I love. Super stoked. All right. Well, until next time. Stay jellical. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it jellical, y'all. Jellical. <laughs> oh, wait, we should do a uh, Phantom Paradise. Sign off. Um, are you going to fade that music in, Brady? Justice League, Music. Watching Kanye interview, feel like I wanna cry. For every innocent brother charged with a homicide. Went from battle rap, so now we wearing MAGA hats. Dade County nigga mansions up in Tamarack. Never golfing with the Trumps, and I give you my word. Back to coming out the Trump charging 20 a bird. Another seizure, so I woke up in intensive care. Pray you treat a poor man like he was a millionaire. Actress is coming to see me like a movie premiere. Yo, boy, show me love just for keeping it real. Dozen lawyers on the team, I'd rather keep them close. Bill Cosby dead in prison, I can see the post.